0: Welcome to the Monday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken Cruzado and if you're a regular here on the show, you're expecting Pastor Ron. He won't be in today. The plan is for him to be back here on the show tomorrow. He is a bit under the weather, so you can keep him in prayer. He sends his love as always and and really appreciates your prayers for him. In the meantime, our show will continue as it normally does. We're here to answer your questions, here to qu- uh, help you with the um, questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus, questions about doctrine and church life or anything we can do to help you to really fall deeper in love with Jesus. That's why we're here. And so for the radio show program, the call and ask your questions, the phone number is 210 210- 340-9585, 210-340-9585, and if you're outside of the local area, we have a toll-free number. That's 877-630-5757, 877 630 There's an email address if you want to submit questions that way. Sometimes that's easier for some people. You can send an email address, an email to questions at calvarysa.com. That's questions, it's plural, at calvarysa.com. Once again, we have our church app. You can ask questions there. You can also listen live on the KSLR app. It's much easier, especially if you're driving. There's a button at the top. It'll connect you right to the studio. You can ask your question on the air. Like I said, it's the Monday edition. That means we have uh, two things here. Our our men's, women's, and youth Bible studies here at Calvary Chapel, if that's something you're interested in, or something you're normally a part of. It's 7 o'clock here at Calvary Chapel. Bring your family. It's a great time. We get to break out into our separate Bible studies after gathering together for worship. And the second thing before we get right into our questions, I really hope you had a great day at church yesterday. We sure did. It was, it was great to see the Holy Spirit working in the hearts of people with the Word of God being taught. We were in Ephesians chapter 5 and uh, quite a direct message. But the one that the Lord used to, to reach reach hearts, and that's all we care about. And I pray that's the same thing that happened at your church. I pray that people got saved or that people who are saved repented and got their heart right with the Lord, because that's what pleases the Lord. Okay, let's jump right into our questions. I gave you the phone numbers. We've got a few that have been submitted. So we'll go to the first one from Tony. He says, I know baptism isn't required to be saved. However, is it a sin not to be baptized? Uh, Tony, the answer is it's not a sin to not be baptized, but you should be baptized. The reason why we should be baptized is because if you are a born again Christian, Jesus says, this is what I want you to do. And so there are two ordinances in the New Testament for Christians, New New Testament born-again Christians, an ordinance in the sense that this is something Jesus has told us to do or the church has demonstrated that that they do. And uh, one of the things is the Lord's Supper. We celebrate that together uh, here at our church. We do it. Uh, on a Communion Sunday, uh, which happens to be the first Sunday of the month. How a church does it doesn't really matter, but that's one of the things that we are commanded to do. The second thing is baptism. Now, Again, this isn't something where we have uh, every month for baptism, at least at our church. Some churches, maybe they have it more often, but we simply don't have the facilities to do that. But when we do have the baptism... Sometimes uh, we have it every summer, but when we do have it, uh, we do it because this is what the Lord said to do. So what we always do, Tony, is encourage people. If you are a born again Christian, then why not take the opportunity, not because you have to, but because you get to, the opportunity to publicly declare what God has done in your heart. That's really what baptism is. It's not something that we should think about that's a requirement to get saved because that's not what the Bible teaches. But if we are already saved, it should be our natural inclination to want to obey Jesus. That's what I want to do. That's what we should want to do. And so when His Spirit lives in us, He moves us to obedience and Jesus says, Yes, Tony, if you're a believer, you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then get baptized. It's the outward expression of an inward reality, an outward expression of an inward reality. Thanks for your question, Tony. Uh, The next question is from Anonymous. Anonymous asks, where was Jesus during the three days that he was dead? None of us, this is a question that we get pretty often. Uh, and, and the answer is actually given to us in scripture. Uh, if you look at Ephesians chapter four, I think it's in the ninth verse, there is a there is a parenthetical. There's a parenthetical there when Paul writes to the Ephesians where he, t- he d- talks about, because the context of that uh, that passage in Ephesians 4 is gifts and God giving gifts. And he's speaking about the church and unity within the church and how God uses gifts. But then there's a parenthetical there in verse 9 where he Paul is talking about Jesus and specifically what happened after the cross. It says that Jesus went down And set captivity free. And and uh, Peter gives us a little bit more information talking about the same thing. uh, In First Peter chapter three, also. Yeah, that was Ephesians four. This is First Peter three, and Peter says that uh, he Jesus went down to proclaim to the captives, to those that were in disobedience. So what what happened was that Jesus went down to the place of Hades, not hell, but Hades. And in Hades, the place of the dead, there were two compartments. We learned this from Luke chapter 16 also. And one compartment would be called uh, the place of promise or Abraham's bosom, and that's the place where those who died believing in God prior to the cross would go to wait and on the other side there is the place of torment not hell but its torment and and once you're there there's no crossing over that's what Luke chapter 16 reminds us of so in the section called Abraham's bosom when Jesus died, he went down to set captivity free. The people that were waiting in Abraham's bosom today are no longer there because Jesus set them free. He also went to go proclaim victory to those that were on the other side. He didn't preach the gospel, as some translations may say. He went to proclaim victory, which which is basically Jesus saying a victory has won death has been conquered and to those that died in disobedience um they now await judgment and so that's what happened in those 3 days and so remember those 3 days from Friday afternoon remember how the 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 Jewish calendar operated it's not the 24 hour day like what we would count, it was part of the day on Friday, would count as Friday, then Saturday, and, and the, into the nighttime of Saturday would go, would count as the day for Sunday, and into the morning, those are the three days. Not literal 24 hour days, but three days. And the, that's exactly what happened during those three days. Jesus went down into the place of the dead to proclaim victory and to set captivity free. That's why today, when a believer dies, they don't go down into Abraham's bosom because Abraham's bosom is empty. There's nobody there. On the other side, though, it's still being populated because the lake of fire doesn't open up until later on in Revelation chapter nineteen twenty. That's when hell is opened up. So those that die apart from Christ today go into this place of torment. That's what Jesus did for those three days, Anonymous. Hope that helps. Thank you for your question. Our next one is also from Anonymous. Uh, Why must Christians suffer? And suffer is in quotes. It doesn't make being a Christian appealing. What kind of God wants us to suffer? Well, Anonymous, the reason why Christians suffer is because everybody suffers, whether you're a Christian or not. That's just the truth. The life that we've been given here on earth is a life that is not uh, immune to suffering. Remember what Jesus is saying, that it rains on the wicked and on the righteous. And so that means that difficulty happens to all of us. Now, the key here, Anonymous, is if you are experiencing difficulty, which all of us have at some point or are going to, it is much better to deal with the difficulties of life with Jesus. And that's why suffering is something that the Bible teaches it actually it teaches us that it actually can be used to bring us closer to jesus closer to jesus now that's i understand it's a foreign concept especially for a world that doesn't know jesus nobody wants suffering so let's not be naive nobody chooses suffering and nobody prays for trials but paul reminds us when he writes to the philippians in the third chapter this beautiful thing about suffering is it doesn't feel good. Excuse me. It doesn't feel good, uh, but it uh, helps us to become more like Jesus. And that's the key. And, In that third chapter of Paul's letter to the Philippians, Paul would write that he wants to know Christ. Now, this would be a man who in in the entire world, there would be nobody that knows him more. But he says, I want to know him. And the idea is I want to know him even more. And he says that through the He'll get to know him through the fellowship of his sufferings. That means identifying with Jesus in his sufferings in the same way that Jesus suffered while he was here on earth. So too are we called to suffer along with him. But the good news is, Anonymous, is that Jesus doesn't leave us all alone when we're suffering. He gives us his spirit so that... By the power of his spirit, that suffering that we endure today can mold us and shape us into the image of Christ. That's what Paul is talking about in the third chapter of Philippians, verse 10. In that same letter, in chapter 1, towards the end, uh, Paul also says about suffering. The Apostle Paul says that uh, it is a badge of honor to suffer for his name's sake. He says, not only has it been granted unto you to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his name's sake. It's an amazing thing to think about because who thinks about suffering as an honor, as a gift? Well, Christians do if Our perspective is to receive and allow the suffering that we're enduring to do the work that God has set out for it to accomplish. So God is not a mean God, and he's not intending for anyone to suffer. Remember when Paul would uh, write—I'm sorry, it would be Isaiah that would write, I think in the 20th chapter of his prophecy— that judgment is a strange thing, a foreign thing to God. It isn't because God wants His people to suffer. Too many people have this mischaracterization of God being a grouchy old man with a sledgehammer just waiting to drop it on somebody that messes up. But that's not who He is. That's not Him. So when you ask the question, Anonymous, Why must we suffer? Because suffering can mold us and shape us more to be like Jesus. And when you ask again what kind of God wants us to suffer, He doesn't want us to, but He knows it's necessary because He loves us. And, Anonymous, I hope that you receive that and allow the Lord to do what He wants to do in you. You know, Side note, related to this, Anonymous, not pertinent to your question, but it is related. Uh, As Christians, we have to remove this idea that being a Christian means we're not going to suffer. Um, For example, sometimes when people pray, they pray at the beginning of their day, which is a good thing. They pray for safe travels. This is a good thing. Pray that nobody will get hurt today and that it'll be a good day. Well, if something unexpectedly happens that day, uh, sometimes Christians, because of this misunderstanding, that, that because they prayed, God is obligated to protect them. Their response to that is almost a shock that something happened. And they say, well, but I prayed. I prayed that God would protect me. We are not immune to suffering, to bad news. But we still pray that it would be according to God's will, that nothing would happen, that things would go according to plan. But if they don't, it's not because God is angry. It's not because God is punishing and it's not because God did not hear your prayer. It's simply because uh, why God allowed it, I don't know the, we don't know the exact reason, but we know this, because, of, again, what Paul wrote, that difficulty, that suffering, God wants to use it to make us more like Jesus. I'm so Anonymous, thank you for your question. Titus is, asks the next question. Can you please explain what praying in tongues is? And can you explain how one can receive this gift? Do we just start trying? Thank you for your help. Uh, um, Titus, that's a good question. One of the things that I want to help you understand uh, is, is... sort of this mysticism that comes with tongues among some Christians. If we look at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, um, and you look at the section focusing on spiritual gifts, chapter 12, chapter 12 and and into chapter 14, where he talks about using your gifts within the corporate body. Um, These gifts, So let me take a step back. God gives gifts for the edification of the body. He gives gifts that we could use our gifts to build one another up. And so uh, whenever you have a perspective like that about gifts and what they're used for, one thing you'll know for sure is this. God does not give us spiritual gifts to draw attention to ourselves, He doesn't give us spiritual gifts so that we could put on a show. He doesn't give us gifts so that we could financially profit from them. What he does is he gives us gifts for the specific purpose of edifying and building up the body. Now, when it comes to tongues, tongues is the least among all the gifts, Paul says. The reason why it's the least among all the gifts, because it's something that is individual. Well, there's two parts to this. The reason why tongues is something that is beautiful, even if it would be the least among the gifts, is because the gift of tongues allows us as believers to pray in a way to God that only he can understand. I understand it's weird, and it might be foreign to some it's just not normal that the to praying tongues isn't something that we need to over spiritualize it's simply speaking to God in a type of prayer language, if you will that's just between you and him It's a vertical gift a vertical gift it's not for anyone uh to to hear or, 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 or participate in, you know, when you have uh, some churches that, that use the gifts uh, out of order. Um, Paul writes that this is confusing to a stranger that walks in. How does that honor Jesus? And so we don't use the gifts that God has given us to overemphasize or be carnal with them. But every gift we know that God has given, every spiritual gift is going to be used to direct people to Jesus. But again, with the gift of tongues, one facet of it is individual in the sense that it is a vertical gift between you and God. So when you ask the question, Titus, do I start trying? In faith, you ask God for that gift. And then just start speaking to him. And I'm not talking about just uh, start, you know, yabba dabba do and saying weird things. God really doesn't care much about the words or the sounds that are coming up. It's the expression of your heart that he's interested in. And so let him give you that gift. And then just by faith exercise it when you speak to him. Don't worry about what you say or if it makes sense to you. It is your heart expressing in sounds, in in words, maybe foreign words, things that you don't normally say because it's between you and God. There's another way that the gift of tongues, and this is the sign gift that's demonstrated in the book of Acts, It is a gift that God would use for a specific purpose that would give people a language gift. Maybe for a particular time. We see this at the birth of the church. We see this in chapter 10 of Acts also. We see it in chapter 19. Every time that the Spirit of God was moving on a group to to validate What he was doing within the church, he would use a sign gift, sort of as a a one-off, to say, this is me. And people would speak in a language that would be foreign to them, but native to the listeners. And the listeners would know that this message is from the Lord. And so I hope that helps. Um, Titus, it is a wonderful gift, one that the Bible encourages us. To seek, to seek all gifts, even if it's the least among them, tongues can be useful in your walk with the Lord. It's edifying and encouraging. Now, there are times when here at Calvary Chapel, we will exercise the gift of tongues in an afterglow. This public setting is something that's in order, not out of order. There's nothing weird. But if the gift of tongues is exercised, there will be a a translation, an interpretation, excuse me. If there is no gift of interpretation according to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, then we just say, because we want to keep it orally, no more tongues for the night. But beyond that, we don't have to over-spiritualize tongues, and we definitely don't want to make it about ourselves. So, Titus, thank you for your question. I think it's an important one. So You can hear the music, that means we are done with the first half of the Monday edition of the Word to Stand on for Life. My name is Pastor Ken, and I'll be back in two minutes.
1: back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
0: Welcome back to the Monday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. My name is Pastor Ken. I'm filling in for Pastor Ron today who's feeling a bit under the weather, so you can keep him in prayer. The plan is for him to return back here on the air tomorrow, Uh, but we'll see what the Lord does. And so in the meantime, I want you to know our show continues. As usual, we're here to take your questions, questions about the Bible, questions about Jesus, questions about doctrine, anything we can do to help you. So quickly, I'll give you the phone numbers and then we'll move on to our questions. 210-340-9585. 210-340-9585. The toll-free number is 877-630-5757. 877-630-5757. I want to go to our email inbox. We have one that was submitted by Ray Ray. Uh, This one is addressing Pastor Ron, but I'll go ahead and take it. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron, can you make sense of Matthew 17:21? not being in a lot of the newer versions of the Bibles? People are saying that the King James is the one we should be reading, but it is difficult for me to read. Also, do you think that verse, howbeit this kind goeth, not out but by prayer and fasting, and that we need to pray and fast always. The Christian church does not believe we need to fast. What are your thoughts? Thanks. Ray Ray, uh, thank you for your question. And so I'll take this in two parts. Uh, About Matthew chapter 17, here in verse 21, let me, just for context, this is about the demon, uh, the boy with the demon. But towards the end of that passage, Towards the end of that passage, here's what verse 20 says. He replied, because you have so little faith, I tell you the truth that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. And then verse 21 would add that part, this kind does not go out except for prayer and fasting. And and Ray Ray, one of the things that you um, we need to understand is is that the the, the minor discrepancies among Bible versions um, are insignificant in the sense that they don't change the story. But to your question, the reason why this verse that highlights or emphasizes the need for prayer and fasting is because it's simply not in the manuscripts that the modern translations would use. Um, Like I read from the NIV, the NIV 84, and all of the other modern translations like the NIV 84 uh, use the Alexandrian manuscripts, which which are the older ones, but not necessarily the the best ones in the sense that they're older. But that's the translation from which the NIV 84 sources from. And so in that particular manuscript, the Alexandrian manuscript, it does not have this verse. Uh, the King James, which comes from the Textus Receptus or the Masoretic text. It does have this verse, but it doesn't change the meaning. So that's why you have that verse available in the King James and other translations that come from the same Texas Receptus uh, and and why others won't. And you'll find this um, to be the case in a couple more places in the New Testament. Again, it doesn't change the meaning of anything but it's simply the translators being honest with the the source manuscripts that they're working from. The second part of your question um, is a more practical one. And you ask here, uh, do you think that verse, how be it in the, the the King James Version, this kind does not go out by prayer and fasting, and that we need to pray and fast always, the Christian Church does not believe we need to fast. What are your thoughts? You know, the... the What Jesus is saying here, so back to the the passage, what Jesus is saying here is important. He's not saying everybody needs to fast. Uh, He's not saying that you shouldn't fast. But the context of the statement here, what he's saying is that there is power, supernatural power, that's required for these types of demons— for this type of work. Now, remember the context of this study. There were some of the disciples that were down at the foot of the mountain because this happened right after the Mount of Transfiguration. And so Jesus, with just a few of the the disciples, were up on the top of the mountain. And while they were up there, and the Mount of Transfiguration um, discourse was going on, uh, the rest of the disciples were dealing with this, and so Jesus comes down from the mountain with uh, Peter and John, and, and then they they come down and see that this argument is going on, and so Jesus is speaking to the disciples that are there because they're asking why why didn't it work for us, why 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 did we do the exact same thing that you did Jesus but we couldn't cast this demon out and that's why he's saying this kind requires supernatural power fresh power is the key and and i think the application here for us uh, ray ray is that uh, we can't robotically and mechanically go through things and do things without the power of the Holy Spirit. Everything we do must be bathed in prayer. And everything we do must be powered by the Spirit. And so uh, what Jesus is emphasizing here is, guys, uh, the reason why it didn't work out for you is because the way you were trying to do it was wrong. You need fresh power. And so fresh power... Doesn't mean you have to fast to get fresh power. uh, He he is describing what they would have done in their day. But the key is that being with Jesus, being with him today, is how we get that fresh power. So I hope that helps, Rari. Thank you for your question. Let's go right to our phone lines. We have Scott on line one. You're on the air.
2: Hey, Pastor Ken. How are you this afternoon?
0: Scott? I'm doing pretty good. I don't sound hundred percent, but I feel great.
2: Well, you sound like a little bit like me, kind of having a little bit of sinus or congestion with the weather change.
0: That's so exactly I, it.
2: I kind of have like three questions. I'm gonna to try to get them all out to you. um One of them may kind of depend on what your answer is to the other one so but uh okay um. First off, um, I've, I've heard it, and I kind of agree with it, but I don't know that it's um, the correct way of saying it or not. But, um, like, when a woman tries to, um, to, to be the head of the household, she's not taking the husband's position. She's taking Christ's positions. the way that I've heard that. And it makes sense because she's trying to be head over the man. And uh, then the other two questions, one of them is kind of dependent on that, on how, you, on how you answer that. Could that be applied to like the church where there's a woman pastor because she's taking authority over the, the men leadership or whatever? Could that be kind of the same type of thing that she's actually maybe taking like the position of Christ? And then the third question is, is that um and i'm i've been i talked to pastor ron last week a little bit and I, a couple of times but i'm kind of working through the exegesis, exegesis and all that would, okay. would the would the eisegesis point of view or whatever would could that be what is they're using or whatever when they actually place a woman in the pastoral position and that's kind of my three questions, and, and I'm anxious to hear what you have to say about all that. And I
0: will there. Okay, Scott. Yes, I, I will take all three, and uh, I'll do them in the order that, uh, that you asked them. Great questions, by the way. Thank you for your call. Uh, so, the first one, Scott, about women uh, usurping or taking the place of man when it comes to authority. Um, And if it is, I think your question is, if it is Christ that they're replacing. um, Well, so the answer is, I think, given to us in in Genesis and also in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember that part of the curse from Genesis chapter 3 is that Eve's desire and um, figuratively, which would translate to all women because of the curse, their desire would be for their husband, uh, so and that sounds like a good thing, but it wasn't. Specifically, God would say to Eve, "Your desire would be for His authority." So it is. God God designed the male to lead the home, and to lead the church, and this curse or the consequence of the curse is one of the things that God said to Eve is one of the things you're going to desire. So it isn't so much that uh, women are trying to undermine or usurp the authority of Christ. Now, ultimately, that's what it is because they they are being disobedient to the Word of God, and Jesus is the Word. He is the Logos. But more specifically to your question, Scott, It isn't the woman targeting the leadership of Christ, even if Christ is the head of the church. It's the fact because as a result of the curse, the woman's desire is for the authority that God has given to the man. Now, in in the home and in the church, those are the only two places where God says the men should lead. This doesn't mean a country can't be led by a woman. This doesn't mean that women can't operate in CEOs or or in government or anything like that. But in church and in the home, the men are to lead. Now, second part of your question, does this translate into... uh, within the church, women, specifically about women being pastors. Well, it does. It does. Um, Because, again, these are the natural desires for women. Women, because as a result of the curse, they will desire that authority that God has said is reserved for the man. And we see that at home, and we see that within the church. And both are in direct violation of what the scriptures say. I know that may upset some people, but that's just what the scriptures say. And because this is what the word of God says, um, and there is no other way to translate it, because you know when Paul writes to Timothy, and and he says that women shouldn't be pastors. Uh, the the hermeneutic there is explained in the following verse when he makes a reference to Genesis indicating that this is a principle a a a rule that applies uh, throughout all all times and all cultures for every church not just something specific to that time when Paul wrote to Timothy and the third part of your question uh eisegesis versus exegesis you know yes you know i so just for a clear definition eisegesis is when we read into that's where the 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 prefix the greek prefix eis means eis means to go into uh exegesis is the prefix exe exe, to pull out of so when you have eisegesis versus exegesis Eisegesis means you're reading into the Scriptures. Exegesis means you're pulling out from the Scriptures. And the way that I like to describe it, uh, Scott, is is like this, in in, in very basic terms. Uh, Proper exegesis is understanding the the author— the author's intent and understanding the listener and the occasion in which this letter would have been written. So when Paul is writing to the Ephesians, we know who the author is. We know who who penned it. We know who is the recipient. And then we think about, we look into the reason behind the writing of the letter that gives us the background that helps us to establish uh, what is going on in this passage, so we can pull out of it what the what the meaning is, in other words, we look at the then and there so that we can apply the here and now then and there is the exegesis then and there, what happened back then what would it have meant to the listeners back then and from that we can glean what the application of that passage is here and now. The problem with eisegesis is they skip to the here and now. They take something like what Paul would write to Timothy about, um, you know, women being pastors or not being pastors and, and say, well, that doesn't apply because they jump to the here and now. This is you know, women's lib, and this is equal rights, and this is a time when, you know, women can do anything that men can do, which may all be true. But according to God's economy, the one thing that they cannot do is be pastors. And so that's a form of eisegeting into the Scriptures. Not the most common way of eisegeting. Usually, eisegesis is related to Uh, End time events, reading, you know, taking the headlines from the newspaper and reading that into the scriptures. But it's uh, essentially pulling out of it or, or putting into it a meaning that is culturally relevant today. That's eisegesis versus the exegesis is pulling the simple meaning out of it. What was meant back then and there? And how do we apply it to the here and now? So, Scott, I hope that helps. Uh, I appreciate your questions. I did hear you call last, last week with Pastor Ron, and you always ask good ones, and so thank you for that. Let's go back to the questions that have been submitted. The next one from our email inbox is from Jason. He says, I have had trouble understanding the fruits of the Spirit. I believe this refers to living in the Spirit and a personal relationship with Christ, but I've always wondered if it may depend on how many people I have led to the Lord. For example, the parable of the Ten Servants in Luke chapter 19 mentions specific numbers that they earned with the minas. Also, on a side note, if I may, I believe Jesus is speaking of himself returning as a as king but describes himself as reaping what he has not sowed what does it mean to put the mina on deposit thank you so much for your ministry i am very excited about the new building and and i know that god will bless many people through ccsa and what you guys do with it okay well thank you for your question uh Jason, I'll take this in in two parts. I'll take this in two parts, and I think I can help provide some clarity here. Uh, When it comes to the fruit of the Spirit, it really is as simple as what God produces in us when we're with Him. That's the fruit of the Spirit. From Galatians chapter 5, We look at these fruits, and and, and I want you to notice something, Jason. The fruit is singular, at least the way that the word, the noun is used there. It's singular, but it's made up of these nine different facets, nine different gifts, if you will. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's the first one. And all of the things that make up love follow joy, peace, patience goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Uh, and all these things are given to us when we are with Jesus. They're not given to us when we earn things or when we do good things. So I want to help you understand that the, the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit is given to us Sort of as a natural byproduct of just being with him, it's sort of like when you have a, a big, strong magnet. When I was a little kid, I used to pull apart speaker boxes, and I would look at the the big magnet on the back of a subwoofer. And I remember playing with it, and little things like metal items, like paper clips, and I would uh, let them stick there. Well, if you imagine that big magnet being Jesus. And you being that little paper clip, when that paper clip is attached or connected to that magnet, the contact area, the surface area, and and uh, over time equates to some of those magnetic properties being translated over to the paper clip. That's why you can, after some time, pull that paper clip off and you can see it'll be attracted to other pieces of metal. Well, it's the same thing with Jesus. The more time you spend with him, the more you become like him. And when it comes to the fruit of the spirit, these are simply evidences of you being with Jesus. You will be more loving. You will be more joyful and more patient and more kind. You will be all these things as you spend more time with Jesus. So, the fruit of the Spirit is not dependent upon what you do. It's dependent upon who you're with. I hope that makes sense, Jason. And God's desire is for Him to produce fruit in our lives. One more analogy. You know, this is Jesus Himself said this in John chapter 15 He is the vine, and we are the branches. So, as born again Christians, We are attached. We are the branch that is attached to the vine. Well, the fruit grows on the branches, not on the vine. And so if the branch is to produce fruit, it's all dependent upon that connectivity to the vine. That's where all the nutrients come from. That's where all the life comes from. Can you imagine if the branch were to break off from the vine— It would cut off all the nutrients. And so no matter how hard that branch tried to squeeze out some fruit, it wouldn't be able to do it. Why? Because the production of fruit or fruit being evident in the life of a believer is completely dependent upon being with Jesus, being connected to him. So when it comes to the minas here, and I I just have a couple of minutes. This will be the last question here. The minas here, uh, you know, this, this, Parable that Jesus is explaining has nothing to do with earning rewards. Uh when when the parable of the ten servants are all about are all about uh uh being faithful with the gifts that He's given you. And so for the one that buried it, they they were unproductive because they didn't trust God, they didn't exercise the gift that they were given. And to those that were given gifts, what they did was they went out and used their gifts to make more. And this is what God wants us to do with the gifts that he's given us. When you have, say, the gift of faith, if you exercise that gift, you will increase in your faith. Your walk with the Lord will grow stronger. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, That small amount of faith and you keep it to yourself and you don't exercise it, your faith's not going to grow and you're not being faithful with what God has given you. Jason, thank you for your question. You can hear the music. That means it's the end of the show. It's Monday night studies tonight, seven o'clock. My name is Pastor Ken. It's been a pleasure filling in for Pastor Ron. He'll be back tomorrow at four. We'll see you then.
1: God bless.